We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1 again. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Over the Christmas season, we're focusing on the incarnation, the implications of Jesus coming as a human being. We're going to be looking at this first opening text from Hebrews 1, maybe drifting a little bit into the rest of the chapter, but then taking chapter 2, which will take us into January. And I think you'll be really encouraged at how Christ is exalted and what that means for us as God's people from these rich texts. As we enter the Christmas season, I'm encouraging you as a congregation to keep your focus, keep your attention on the person of Jesus Christ. For one, like Heath just reminded us a few moments ago, uh, the best traditions and even the, the texts of Scripture can become very familiar to us. We can be going through these these uh, traditions and motions of, of worshiping Christ and not really be engaged at all with him. And also because it's so easy to get caught up in the frenzy of the holiday season, the buying, the selling, the sights and sounds, the focus on giving and receiving and uh, the last minute shopping. None of us have ever done that, have we? Uh, finding that right gift for the people on our list and then there's family coming over or we're traveling uh, to some other place, and we have these other traditions and gatherings. And this activity alone can make this time of year exhausting. And in the name of celebrating the birth of Christ, we get exhausted because it's all going to him for his honor and glory. But honestly, we can do all of these things without leaving ourselves time to even think about Christ. But underlying these activities... I don't know if we think about it very often, but there's often this emotional and psychological pressure to have everything just right, to make the people we love happy by giving them something, especially as parents trying to give to our children and sometimes feeling guilty or embarrassed that we can't give as much as somebody else or we can't give what we want to, or we desire to feel nostalgic because we're supposed to, but we don't. And so we feel bad about that. Or we're supposed to be joyful. We're supposed to create a good experience and it doesn't always work out. And sometimes we end up feeling empty when it's all over, like there's an emotional letdown. And if that's true, do you know why that is? It's because we have tried to be fulfilled through all of these activities when we are not created to be fulfilled with these activities. We were created to know the person of Jesus Christ and be fulfilled in him. Or as John Piper put it, we weren't meant to be somebody. We were meant to know somebody. And knowing Jesus Christ starts with looking deeply at the word of God and seeing and savoring who he is, and to take a step back, as we talked about it several weeks ago in our series on worship, and say, wow, and worship him. This is not empty devotion to make us feel religious. Knowing the Lord is our only source of strength for the journey ahead. It gives us assurance and hope when our good shepherd is large in our imagination. Well, this text that we're looking at in Hebrews 1 makes the Savior large in our imaginations. And I think you'll see this as we continue to look closely at this magnificent text. Let's read it together. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the final word from God. When the writer says that God once spoke in various ways, notice he says in prophets, but has in these last days, he says, spoken literally in a son. He doesn't mean that Jesus is simply another way in a long line of ways that God has spoken. He means that Jesus is the ultimate way that God has spoken. The final word, all of the prophets pointed to Jesus Christ. And what was only a promise in former days has now been realized by his coming, he says. Why is Jesus the final word? Well, the author tells us in verses two and three by making seven statements about the son which demonstrate his superiority and authority and supremacy over all things. There are some statements about him also in verse four. We're just looking at these seven though in verses two through three. And I explained a little bit more about this last week, but uh, I, I just put the seven up here so you can see them separated. The essence are in the, fir- the, the middle two statements found at the beginning of verse three. And it says here, that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That points to the essence of Jesus Christ. If you continue to expand upward and downward in that text, you see the, the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the final word because of his work. The last statement in verse 2 says, through whom he also created the world. And not only did Jesus make the worlds, verse 3 says that Jesus sustains the worlds. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And finally, he redeems the world after making purification for sins. So the son is seen as the creator and the sustainer and the redeemer in this text. And furthermore, on either side of these statements, or rather at the beginning of the list and at the end of the list, we see that the Son is the final word because, he, because of his status. He is the owner and ruler of all things in whom he has appointed, been appointed the heir of all things. And then it says at the end, he sat down on his throne, is the idea there, at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, these statements about the Son, I don't, you don't recognize this when you first look at the text, but these statements about the Son in verses 2 and 3 move very definitely from the Son's status to His work, to His essence, and then from His essence to His work and to His status. Now, authors don't do this very much today. I don't know anybody who does actually in writing commonly, but this is a very common literary structure in ancient writing that authors would use when they were trying to poetically say something significant to present a list of ideas in one order and then offer a similar list in the opposite order. It's called chiasm. 
Because when you put the list side by side, the first and the last elements point to each other, forming the Greek letter key, which looks like our English X. So that's why they call it chiasm. I know like 0.2% of you, 0.2% of you even care about that, but it, for the 0.2, I, that's why I put that up there so you would know uh, what is going on. But it, it, it sounds like a technical point that only scholars would care about, but really it's something people knew to look for when they read in the ancient world. And the important thing is that the climax would be at the center of this structure. So these statements at the center are the highlight, the way the text is structured. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And he is the exact imprint of his nature, Jesus' essence. We focused solely on these statements last week. Essence means that which makes something what it is. If you took away the essence of a thing, or in this case of a person, it would no longer be what it is. It would cease to have its identity. What, for example, is the essence of water? Somebody might say wetness. But wetness is really not the essence of water because I can freeze water into ice and it's no longer wet. I can boil water so that it evaporates into the air, but it's still water. Wetness is only one of many forms of water that it can take. It's a property of water, but it's not the essence of water. The answer to the question, what is the essence of water, I think is really the formula we all know that water is, H2O. Two hydrogen atoms combined with one oxygen atom. If I alter that formula at all, I no longer have water. I have hydrogen peroxide if I take away uh, a hydrogen atom. Or I, it, it may look like water and act like water, but it's not really water. If I separate the oxygen from the hydrogen, which is possible using electrolysis, I end up with two separate gases. If I drop the temperature of the hydrogen to 423 Fahrenheit, negative 423 Fahrenheit, it would turn into liquid, but it's still not water. In short, the essence of water is its chemical structure. And if I modify that structure in any way, it ceases to be what it is. Now, these core elements in verse 3, which we examined last week, are some of the most comprehensive statements in all the New Testament about the essence of Jesus Christ. And the essence is his deity here. The fact that he is God. The first statement, notice, he is the radiance of God's glory, teaches us that Jesus shines forth the Shekinah glory of God, the kind of glory he's thinking about from the tabernacle in the Old Testament. He's the source of this glory. Jesus isn't necessarily, he he isn't just reflecting the glory of the Father. We think of it that way sometimes. This verse says he actually is the glory of the Father. And the second statement, the exact imprint of his nature, teaches that Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible, unapproachable God. The essence of Jesus in verse 3, apart from which he would cease to be who he is, is true deity. That baby in the manger, he was born 100% God, well, 100% man. And these statements are unmistakable in the text. Now, this morning, we need to go further and and examine Jesus' work. And and next Lord's Day, we're going to examine Jesus' status. But before we look at that, I want you to understand that there are more statements here that you're looking at that point to Jesus' deity. In fact, every one of them in one way or another points to the deity 
of Jesus Christ. Every statement you see here. And, and notice at the center are unmistakable statements of his deity. So it's not surprising in the structure that every one of them has the same characteristic. And I want you to ask, I want you to, you to understand this this morning, how this would say to a Jewish person reading this text for the first time in the first century that Jesus is God. So to, to do that, we have to think like one of these Jewish Christians, a, a Jew who accepted Christ as his or her Messiah and embraced the gospel and came to faith in Jesus Christ. You're going to have to put your Jewish sandals on for a few moments and go back into the first century and think like they would think. You were reared as a Jew, listening to the Torah, the law, being educated in the yeshiva, the school, especially if you're male, worshiping every Shabbat, every Sabbath day in the synagogue. And now you've come to faith in Christ as your Messiah, your Messiah. He came for you. The scriptures have been fulfilled. And you've embraced him for salvation. And yet the things that are written in the law and the writings in the prophets, in your scriptures are still true which means that there are certain things you have believed and always have believed and still believe about your God. Your God, Yahweh. They're still true. The Hebrew scriptures are part of the scriptures of the church. For instance, if you were to look back at Deuteronomy 6, and I'll have the text up here, but if you're, you want to turn back there, you, you're welcome to do that as well. But if you look back at Deuteronomy chapter 6, as a faithful Hebrew, when you got up every single morning, it was your tradition to pray to your God. And you would start your morning prayers with the Shema, which is the Hebrew word that means hear or listen. And you would say, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you would recite this and you would, you would pray certain prayers every single day of your life. And as a believing Jew, this declaration had profound implications for your theology. It was driven into your brain. If God is one, there is only one God. Your faith as a first century Jew is intensely monotheistic. In fact, your entire theology is predicated on the fact that there's only one God. If there's only one God, it follows that there is only one God who is to be loved. There's only one God who is to be worshipped. So verse 5 logically flows from verse 4. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Why? Because there's no other God to love. He is the only one. And in verse 13, when Jesus in the temptation in Matthew 4 and, and Luke 4, when he's in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, he says this very verse. He quotes this scripture to the devil. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall fear. It is the Lord your God, the one God, him you shall serve. By his name, you shall swear allegiance. And as an Orthodox Jew living in the first century, this is how you think. There's only one God. He's alone to be worshiped. Furthermore, everything ascribed to deity in the Old Testament is ascribed to this God because there's no other. In fact, there are several things we could mention that for you as an Orthodox Jew, reading the Old Testament, you are convinced 
can be true of only one person, and that is your God, Yahweh. For example, God the Lord, Yahweh, is the only one who creates. God the Lord, Yahweh, is the only sovereign ruler. He is the only one who is eternal. He is the only one who can truly save. In fact, God the Lord is the only one known by this unique name, Yahweh, the I Am. And these convictions fill the pages of the Old Testament. We can especially see them when we look at the Psalms. I want to turn your attention to a couple of these really quickly. Psalm 96, for instance. I, we've, sing, we've sung these, uh, we've we, we put these songs in, into music. Uh, we have uh, recited them. We've used them for the call to worship. I want you to think, though, about the fact that for a Jew, there's only one person being described here. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Sing to Yahweh. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations and marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Why? For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. They don't even exist. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And we could keep going in Psalm 96, but this is one of the Psalms that you would have known well coming from a solid Jewish family, having your roots in Judaism in the first century, a psalm that speaks of the uniqueness of Yahweh. In this psalm, there's only one God to be worshiped, one God who is real, one God who creates, one God who sustains and rules. We could go to Psalm 93. You can see here the majesty and rule and sustaining and eternal power of Yahweh. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. The world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established of, from of old. You are everlasting, it says to Yahweh. Now we could look at Psalm after Psalm, which exalts the Lord like this. Psalm 3, 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 4, 8, you only make me dwell in safety. Psalm 18, for who is God except for Yahweh. Psalm 62, 2, he only is my rock and my salvation. Psalm 72, blessed be Yahweh who alone does wondrous things. You whose name alone is Yahweh are the most high over all the earth. And then we have this wonderful statement in Psalm 148, let them praise the name of Yahweh for he alone is exalted. Now, if we have all of that in mind, and all of our lives, this has been washing over our minds and we are in, it is ingrained in us. It is conviction. We come back to Hebrews chapter one and having been reared in a good Orthodox, as a good Orthodox Jew, now having embraced Jesus the Messiah as Lord, a letter comes from the pen of one of God's men writing as an apostle or under apostolic authority, we're not sure. The author of Hebrews never identifies himself. And in this letter, the author takes the truths 
which you all your life have been taught to, to attribute to one God alone. And he applies them equally to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's unmistakable. You can't miss it as a good Orthodox Jew looking at this text with these eyes that have never seen anything like it. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And then he says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And as the letter continues to be read, the realization that your savior, Jesus Christ, is being equated with the one true God becomes more real to you. If we keep reading into chapter one, verse eight says uh, that... uh, Verse 8 illustrates the fact that the author continually is applying the Old Testament scriptures to Jesus Christ. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's taking that text we just heard from the Old Testament and applying it to Jesus Christ. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And in verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. In the beginning and the heaven uh, in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish but you remain they will all wear out like a garment like a robe you will roll them up like a garment they will be changed but you are the same and your years will have no end he's not talking about God the Father he's taking the text that was attributed to Yahweh in the Old Testament and applying it to the son Jesus Christ I think that the opening of Hebrews is one of the most remarkable and unarguable statements of the deity of Christ in all of the New Testament. And you will meet people that will still try to say the the Bible never says that Jesus is God. Oh, really? Start reading Hebrews and read it again and read it again. How can you miss it? No wonder he is the final word. The ultimate communication from God. For in Jesus, God himself is speaking through his own person. Now, in our final moments, I want to begin to unpack these other statements about the son in this text. And we'll look at his work uh, uh, this morning. Last week, I suggested that the letter of Hebrews rivets our attention upon Christ as the final word from God the fulfillment of all God that is promised for three reasons. The first reason was because of his essence. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Let's move to the second reason. Jesus is the final word because of his work. And I've already suggested that there are three main works that are discernible in this text. Jesus created all things. He sustains all things. And I could very easily say he redeems all things. But the emphasis here in the text is on the redemption of his people. So let's look at this text underneath these three ideas. Jesus created all things. He sustains all things. And he redeems his people. The writer says in verse 2, through whom also he created the world. So have, you, have, you, have you thought much about the fact that Jesus Christ is attributed as the one who created the worlds? Literally, he created the ages. But the word ages does not mean a period of time in this context. 
The word ages is used to refer to everything that exists, past, present, and future. All is attributed to the creative power of Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to take time this morning to go into a lot of detail on this point, but I want to show you how this works out in the text of Scripture. For example, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, we read later on in the book of Hebrews, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, literally, it says here again that the ages were created by the word of God. That is, God the Father here is the one who is attributed with creation. Both the Father and the Son create in Scripture. In fact, the Holy Spirit is also involved because Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 says the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, the unformed, uh, shape, unshaped earth. But if we look closely, we can distinguish a difference in the Scripture between the work of the Father and the carrying out of creation of the Son. It appears that God the Father decreed creation. In other words, it was His Word He declared that it would be so. Notice in this text, it was his word that created the world. And and God is the one who spoke in Genesis 1. Let there be light. It was, as the writer says here, through the very word of God. But the son carried out the decree, doing the actual creating. When the father decreed, let there be light, the son created light. The New Testament writers are consistent on this point. John says in John 1, 3, as we just heard, all things were created through him. That is through Jesus Christ. And in Colossians 1, 16, it says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom all exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom all exist. One plans, one carries out. And notice that Paul applies the doctrine of monotheism, the fact that there is only one God, to Jesus Christ himself. This is not a statement of Jesus' shared essence with the Father, but it is, nevertheless, one of the greatest statements of his deity. He is the creator. But not only did Jesus create all things, there's something else remarkable going on here. Jesus sustains all things. And this really is something we have to consider because it really convinces us of the New Testament teaching of the deity of Christ even further. For what God creates, he must also maintain. And if Jesus Christ is the God of creation, he must also be the sustainer of creation. So verse three says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The word upholding in the Greek language means to bear, to carry. It's a word that has forward motion to it. It's like carrying from one place to another is the idea. It's not a word that means lifting up and holding. Can you imagine in your mind for a minute the pictures you've seen of Atlas? Sometimes you see them on an Atlas, right? Here's this big, strong guy, you know, 
carrying the world, holding it there, looking like it's about to crush him. That's not the idea here of Jesus carrying the world. Jesus upholds the world in the sense that he is carrying everything in the world to its ultimate conclusion, holding it together unto the divine Father and Son and Holy Spirit's goals and end. And he does this according to the word of his power or his powerful word, or we could say his decree. For a decree is always a word from God that always comes to pass. So Jesus created all things and he carries along all things, maintaining everything that happens in the worlds which, his, which he has created. Can we, can we stop for a minute and just consider the sheer wonder of that truth? That he created everything and sustains everything? He himself, Jesus Christ? Let's illustrate it in this way. We on planet Earth think that we're a pretty big deal. This enormous planet, beautiful planet that God created that we call home. We have a lot going on here. We have a lot of important matters to think about with our armies and governments and our science and inventions and talents and geniuses and wealthy people and important people. I mean, this is a a pretty big place to have to maintain. I mean, compared to the other planets around us in our neighborhood, you know, we really are ruling over this solar system. But when we start to compare ourselves with the larger picture, we don't feel so big anymore. By size, the earth is nothing compared to other planets. And we are barely visible compared to the sun. Do you know how many earths you can fit inside the sun? 1,300,000 Earths will fit inside that sun. I don't know who got the tape and measured that, uh, but uh, I'm just going to trust the science. But our sun is huge, and we're just little. How can we think we're so big when we look at this enormous sun? But is our sun really that big? Compared to the other stars, here is a picture of our sun compared to the stars that are visible to us. Do you see the sun there? If you don't see it, I'll, I'll point it out to you. It's right there, okay? That is our sun compared to the other suns. Do you see the largest of these stars? It's called Antares. If we were to replace our sun with Antares, in other words, the center of Antares would be, replace the center of our sun, it would actually swallow up all of Venus and Mercury and our Earth and Mars. It's that big. It would swallow that much of our solar system. And all of this is not to mention the fact that when they fix the Hubble telescope on places, they don't even think anything's there. Just the darkest part of the sky, astronomers are able to capture images of thousands of galleries, galaxies chaining out on and on and on that are so much bigger than our little tiny galaxy, which exists uh, just a, a billionth of a billionth of a fraction of everything else around it. And, and God sent his son to this little tiny planet and this little tiny solar system at the little, a little tiny unknown corner of the galaxy. We don't feel so big anymore. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of lying out where there's no city lights disturbing your view and just looking up at the star and thinking about all, uh, thinking about all these things in the night sky and you start feeling smaller and smaller and smaller. But do you understand how profound it is to recognize that Jesus Christ created it all? 
And not only that, but he sustains it all. Every day, all the time. It is an attribute to his deity. It's an attribute to his power and his ability. And we wonder whether he can carry our burdens and our cares when the scripture says to cast them upon him because he cares for us. Psalm 23, that you know, says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Isaiah 40, 11 says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those who are with young. Jesus is already carrying the universe. He's already tending that to its ultimate end, carrying it along. We think our burdens sometimes are are too much for him, that he cannot bring us to what is ultimately his good and ultimately his glory. And I love these statements in Isaiah 40, 11. He doesn't just lead us. Notice it says he carries us in his bosom. He carries us closely, lovingly, And he gently leads those who are with young. In other words, there are sheep he is leading who are also leading. They have young. They also are shepherding in a sense. They they have things on their mind. He's carrying both of them. He's carrying them and he's carrying their sheep. You see what I mean when I say that coming to know the Lord, not what we feel about him, not necessarily what he's doing in our lives, but simply coming to know him is some of the surest foundation for our lives and the surest comfort. Here it means that our Lord Jesus, who saved us, also sustains us. There are many things that these Hebrew Christians faced in the world that we're reading from here. They were facing open hostility to the gospel. Their their lives were being threatened. You read later in Hebrews, you find that out. And yet the writer is assuring them that they not only serve a Lord who created all things, but they serve a Lord who maintains all things. God's got this for them. And we also rest in that assurance today that no matter what comes to us in the plan of the ages, the Lord created and continues to carry what he created to their appointed end for his glory and for the good of his people. And we see that truth dramatically revealed through the next statement in verse three, personally to us. He says, after making purification for sins, and literally in the Greek text it reads, after making purification for these sins. In other words, for our sins. This is a reference not to Jesus creating power or his sustaining power, but to his redeeming power. Jesus created all things. He sustains all things and he redeems his people. The text uh, refers to the aspect of redemption in which Jesus, through the blood of his cross, cleansed us from our sins because we can never stand before God without sin on our own. Our our sin condemns us for all eternity. We don't have any right to be before his throne. We, We are not at home there. But when we put our faith in his cleansing work for us on the cross, our sins are taken away and we are made clean in God's sight because we have our high priest, Jesus Christ, interceding for us forever. And he will intercede for us for eternity. And this is an amazing work, no less stunning and in some ways more astounding 
being the original act of creation. In fact, there's a parallel that we can see in the wording that refers to Jesus as creator in verse 2 and the wording here. We read in verse 2, if you'll notice, that Jesus created the world. That's the ESV translation here. In the Greek text, it literally uses the word to make. It says, he made the world. And in verse 3, notice it says, he made purification for our sins. It's the same verb. There's a parallel there. The creation and the redemption, they are both the Lord Jesus Christ's creative work. This is why Paul is able to say in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it is the God who said, let light be and light was. It is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God created everything. He created us and he redeemed us. And that creative activity is operable in both instances. This means that the Lord Jesus is not the distant, magnificent creator who stuns us with his power, but who could never warm up to us. Rather, he is the one who created all things and sustains all things and also redeemed us. He got down with us. He became one of us. And Jesus of all people knows how to sustain us. He knows how to carry us through eternity. He lived our life like we are living it the writer of Hebrews says, in every sense except without sin. And you can put a period on that and say the end because Jesus is the final word from God. And that means our hope is wrapped up. It is fulfilled in him. He is the creator of all things, most of which stagger us. Most of which our most brilliant geniuses still struggle to understand. That Lord and creator tends us. He carries us like a shepherd and provides for us and will never, ever stop doing it. Praise the Lord for our eternal Lord Jesus Christ, our creator, our sustainer, and our redeemer. Father, thank